Well, if you could take your sleepy hands and eyes and turn to Psalm chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first psalm this morning. Uh, before we dive into this, just to kind of let you know the, the game plan, at least for now, Lord willing, for the next several weeks is to, uh, we're going to take a pretty, pretty extensive uh, pause on the book of John. And I just want to make a personal plea to you um, to please plan to be here uh, for the next um, several weeks. What we're going to do is um, take some time to think about and look at some commitments that we have as Flatland Bible Church. You know, as you know, we are a fairly new church plant, and it's important in the early stages of a church plant to establish a church's identity. You know, <clears throat> I think if we were to pull the room and ask, why do you come here? You'd probably say something about being biblical, and because we preach the word here. But I'll have you know that there are a lot of very unsound churches that would say the same thing. There are not many churches who say, we're not trying to be biblical. Most churches are going to say, we're biblical. I go to this church because it's biblical. They preached God's word there. And then you go there and they do not preach God's word there. And it is not biblical. So what we want to do is take some time to think about what do we mean by biblical? What do we mean by we want to preach the word here? What do we mean by we want everything in this church to be shaped and molded by scripture? What does that mean? And does it mean the same thing that they mean over there? Because if so, then I know what kind of church you are. You probably have a prophetess on staff. Well, hold on a second. That's not what we mean, right? So we want to take some time to think about that and think about what are our distinctives? What are commitments that we have as Flatland Bible Church? And largely, these are not going to be new to you. There are things that we already do, but we're going to put some pen on paper and formalize that a little bit so that we can say when, some, when you're asked, if you ever are, why do you go to that church? You can say, because we're committed to this, that, and the other. And that's what we're doing that because we're trying to be biblical. So over the next several weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. So I, again, my personal plea, please be here for that so that you can um, hear what we're doing, why we're doing it, and understand a little bit more about our worship service, why it is structured the way that it is, and not in other ways, why we preach the way we do, why we choose the songs the way that we do, why don't we have kids' church, those kinds of things. So, okay, our attention today is on Psalm chapter 1. I just want to begin by reading the psalm, putting it before us, and then asking for the Lord's help. So, if you would, please read along with me. This is the word of the living God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, 
and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, as we open this text, would you open our mind and open our hearts to see and receive the truth of your word. Lord, as, as I preach, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth, that they would be pleasing in your sight, that I would glorify you this morning by preaching the word faithfully and clearly as I ought to speak. Would Christ be glorified among us. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this sermon, as you probably already know, is The Blessed Life. Many people have ideas of what they think blessedness is. What are blessings? As a matter of fact, if you were to take the next 60 seconds and just think about what are all the many blessings that you have in your life? What are the many things that God has blessed you with today? Think of a few. I wonder how many things on that list would be material. How many so-called blessings on your list of the many blessings God has blessed you with would be physical and material? God has blessed me with a home. God has blessed me with food in the pantry. God has blessed me with money in the bank, the ability to pay my bills, this car, friends, family, these kinds of things. How much of that list would be filled with material things? Being blessed is a major theme in Scripture. It is a very biblical word. But it's also a very popular word in Christianity today. Everyone wants to be blessed. No one is saying, I'm not really that interested in being blessed, actually. I'm okay with just one blessing, God. Thank you. Everyone is asking for more and more blessings. Everyone wants to take that, that perfect picture for social media of that new thing that you got and then say, hashtag blessed. If you walk around the Christian bookstore, you'll see that this topic is one that sells. It's, it's a blessing to your wallet to talk about blessings. Many popular so-called pastors today, they love to do series after series about being blessed and the blessed life and how to be blessed. And I don't know, maybe it's just my own observation, but it seems to always be indirectly connected with some sort of building project. I once saw an ad for a sermon, an ad for a sermon, get that, on social media from a, a pastor today. He's an up and coming, very charismatic individual named Mike Todd. This is what it says. This is a quote. He says, do you believe in the poverty gospel or do you believe in the prosperity gospel? I want to introduce you to the gospel of purpose. When you think more money, it should be more purpose. God wants you to live a blessed life. Amen, somebody. Hallelujah. Give me the gospel of purpose. 
There's another individual who has a book called The Blessed Life. His name is Robert Morris. He's the pastor of a, a mega, mega church in the DFW area called Gateway Church. In round two of The Blessed Life called Beyond Blessed, this is a description of the book from the publisher. Biblical principles, personal stories, and incredible testimonies come together in this book to teach you how to be a good steward. Learn to properly manage your finances and invite blessings into all areas of your life. This is your guide to increasing and going further with what God gives you so that you can live beyond blessed. Hallelujah. He's also the same pastor in his series about blessedness that said that God tithed Jesus. Everyone wants to live the blessed life. Everyone wants more money. And they want it so bad that they're using, willing to use the name of Jesus to get it. But is this really the portrait of, of biblical blessedness? Is, is that the height of blessedness is to have money? And have things. And to be successful. Because if it is, then what's the difference between a Christian being blessed and a sinner being blessed? What's the difference between a person who's going to go to heaven and be with the Lord forever, their blessedness, and a person who's going to go to eternal damnation and burn in hell forever, and their blessedness? If it's nothing more than material blessings and good health, many people today... Many people at the end of the age will be sentenced to eternal condemnation who had a perfect bill of health. So is that really blessedness? Is that really all that it is? Being blessed is a biblical concept. Much to our, many of our surprise, even mine, this is not an invention of man. It's not an American idea to be blessed. It's a biblical concept, and it's also an important biblical concept. God does desire to bless his people. He does. And God does bless his people. But what does that look like? What does the blessed life actually look like? What does it consist of? Well, this morning, I want us to take some time to look at this psalm so that we can answer some of those questions. As you noticed, this psalm is short and sweet, but it is a deep well of wisdom for us to draw from. It is extremely practical and instructive, but you're not going to find one single command in this psalm. I, I love the way that the psalmist writes this, because it is as though he has two canvases, and using beautiful poetic language, he paints two different portraits. One of the blessed man, the blessed life, and his destination, and the other of the wicked and their cursed destination. What we learn from that is that there are honestly and truly two ways to live. You can live in light of God's blessing, or you can live in wickedness. There are only two kinds of people. There are the wicked and the blessed. And there are only two destinations, eternal cursing and damnation or eternal blessing. There's only two. There are no other options. That's it. There's not a gray area. Well, sometimes I'm 
No, there's two options. And it's, I, I love this psalm because he, he paints these two portraits in such a way that the answer is obvious. Which one do you want to be? One is so beautiful and healthy and lively that it's so attractive. And the other one is, is destruction and it's dark and bleak. And the answer would seem obvious, but so many times we choose the dark and bleak, thorny road. One of them promises blessing and delivers curse. The other delivers from the curse to give eternal blessing. And that's what we are looking at today. You're going to notice, as I've said, that there is no command here. He just paints these portraits almost as though to say, those are the two options, which one are you going to choose? And we would do well to think through that and think well about that. But you're also going to notice as we think about blessedness this morning, there's no mention of money, there's no mention of possessions, and there's no mention of physical health anywhere in this psalm. Instead, he is much more concerned about spiritual realities. We're going to learn that being blessed has nothing to do with the physical world. Does God bless you materially? Yes. Is that ultimately what blessings are? No. You can live the blessed life in a very sick, ill body that's constantly sick, constantly fighting a new disease. You can die of cancer and have lived the blessed life. And on the other end, you can have had all of the money and all of the health and prosperity in the world and meet the cursed destruction. So which one will we choose this morning? Let's look at the two portraits. It's very simple. The way this text breaks up is verses 1 through 3 and then 4 through 6. The chapter opens with the word blessed. If you needed to know what is on his mind in this psalm, it is blessing. It's amazing that we, we begin with this word, with this idea, with this concept, as we open the Baptist hymnal of Israel, if you will. This is Israel's hymn book. This is the songbook of Israel. And the first word, blessed. But also the first thing, the first song in the songbook is that of how to truly live a blessed life. How to truly honor the Lord that teaches us something about worship, doesn't it? So what is blessedness? What does it mean to be blessed? Let's define it with scripture, shall we? Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. You can turn there or you can listen. Blessed is the one whose transgression is for forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. What do you mean? What about money? What about things? What about the stock market? Where are all of those things, psalmist? 
No, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. You remember from the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit? Yes, blessed are those who come hungry and needy to God with nothing in their hands to offer him. Because to those people, the kingdom of heaven is given. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? Who has, past tense, blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The problem with our view of blessedness is that it is not heavenly. It is earthly. Our view of blessing and blessedness is earthly and carnal. But here is Paul exclaiming in worship, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has already given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, what about now, Paul? What about today? What about right now? I want to have my best life now. You already have all of the spiritual blessings. And they're being stored away in heaven for you where moth and rust cannot destroy them where they are impervious to the ups and downs of the stock market. Matthew 16, 17. This is Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What was he talking about there? The knowledge of who Jesus is. Luke eleven twenty nine. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Who said that? Oh, that was Jesus. Revelation 22, 7. You want to know how the book ends? Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Where's money in here? Where are possessions? In, where's health in here? It has no place. The biblical portrait of blessedness has far more to do with being forgiven of your sin, obedient to the word of God, and happy in Jesus than it does anything material. If you were here for our Sunday school study of the Beatitudes, we entitled that series Paradoxical Happiness. Why? Because Jesus was saying over and over, blessed are those who have this and who do this and who are this kind of person. And every single one of them is the exact opposite of what we would picture blessedness to be. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What? Blessed are the persecuted. What? Blessed are the meek. What? Yes, true blessedness doesn't look anything like we think it does. The CSB translates the word blessed in this passage in Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's truly one of the major aspects of the word blessed is happy. You want to find true happiness? Read and live Psalm 1. 
You want true happiness that lasts? That isn't affected by what, by what the left is doing? By what Tucker Carlson is upset about today? That isn't affected by your favorite football team losing? That isn't affected by your, your car getting wrecked? That isn't affected by a really bad report at the doctor? Read and apply Psalm chapter 1. And you will find happiness that is unshakable. So tell us then, Mr. Psalmist, tell us about blessedness. Blessed is the man who does what? Tell me how to live the blessed life. How much do I need to tithe? The first strokes of the brush on the canvas of our minds have to do with the counsel that one accepts. The way one lives in the condition of the heart. I say that because we find this sort of progression here as the psalmist, he first begins by negatively explaining what the blessed life is. He's explaining what it's not. The blessed life is not seen in walking in the counsel of the wicked. The word walk here, if I could use simple language, refers to following in particular steps to follow a particular path. Then the word uh, counsel is referring to advice. And then the word wicked is just a general term for ungodly. So there's no specificity there. It's just the general term for ungodly. In fact, that's how the King James and the New King James renders it is ungodly. So taking all of that together, it's, it's to say that the blessed man does not follow in the path laid out according to the advice of the ungodly. This blessed man does not seek the advice of his friends who are not believers. He does not seek out the counsel of those who do not know God. What are they going to tell him? They're going to tell him things that don't please God. The blessed man does not go to his unbelieving friends about marriage advice. He does not seek out the counsel of unbelievers to learn how he is to think about money. He doesn't listen to the wisdom of his friends who do not know God about how they think he should proceed in a particular matter. He is not interested in the wisdom of the world, for it profits nothing. That is how unbelievers live in the counsel of the wicked. And this is the surest way to begin down the road of apostasy, is to listen to the counsel of ungodly people. To listen to their advice. To spend eight hours a day listening to the advice of ungodly people. And then expecting the five minutes that he spent in the Bible to actually change his heart. That is the surest way to find yourself in apostasy. Whether it, that be in friends that one has had for years but who don't know God. Well, that's my friend. We've been through a lot together. They know me better than anybody else. No, they don't. They don't know the one thing that's most important about you. It's how you've changed. They don't know the God that you serve. And they can't possibly counsel you in a way that is helpful, much less pleasing to God. And this is a hard one. This blessed man does not seek the counsel of his unbelieving family. 
members who don't know God. He doesn't seek their counsel because they don't know God. That is the counsel of the wicked. Remember, there are two options here. There are people who are living according to God in his word and those who aren't. There's not a middle way that's made for our family and people that are near and dear to our hearts. Well, you know, they, they get a secret pass that's not seen anywhere. The blessed man does not seek the counsel of the ungodly, but not only does he not seek it, he doesn't pay attention to it. He doesn't listen to it. He doesn't walk in it. This doesn't always pertain just to the individual seeking counsel from ungodly people. It's also, it also has to deal with allowing the mind to be influenced by ungodly people. Have you ever thought about where you spend the majority of your time and the kind of people that you are surrounded with the majority of the day? For many of us, you work 40 hours. The people that you are surrounded with can, are probably, in most cases, ungodly people. They're ungodly. And who are you listening to for eight hours a day? Ungodly people. Do you know what can easily happen? You know, they might have a point with what they're saying. That, that actually does make a little bit of sense. You know, I have heard so many people, professing Christians and, and, and so-called pastors who who speak of why their views on homosexuality have changed. And do you know what so often it is? You know, I just started talking to people and getting to know their stories. And I started to see, you know, they love each other. Who am I to get in the way of love? So, you know, I don't know. Maybe things have changed a little bit. And, and they've compromised. You know what happened? They were listening to the counsel of the ungodly. And they were walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Instead of having a mind shaped by the scriptures, they have allowed the counsel of the wicked to shape and mold their perspective. But this psalm says, blessed is the man who does not do that. He knows that everyone is going to be influenced by someone and something. So this blessed man is very careful as to who and what he allows to influence his mind and his heart. Because he knows he's the temple of the living God. The blessed man knows and understands what the people he spends most of his time around, his co-workers, his family, who might not believe, his, his friends who perhaps don't believe, he knows where they're coming from, so he does not accept their counsel. He doesn't seek their counsel. He sees them as the mission field. You don't, I don't need to listen. You need to listen to me. You need to hear about the living God. He cannot be influenced by their way of life as appealing as it might look. This is the blessed man. But the blessed man also does not stand in the way of sinners. Here's the, the downward progression. It, it, it begins by, by hearing what, what ungodly people have to say. You begin to be convinced by it. Well, you know, that's, that's a pretty good argument. Maybe we are taking the Bible too seriously. Maybe I really don't have to practice discernment with worship music. You know, maybe I don't really need to go to church that often. Maybe I really don't need to listen to 
what the Bible has to say all that much. And then you become convinced. And instead of walking, you have now stopped and you're standing in the way of sinners. The word stand, the reason why I say that this is a progression is because the word stand carries a connotation of, of fixed. I, I have now become fixed and firm and resolute in what I am doing. It's no longer just kind of toying with an idea. I am now firmly sold and resolved that this is right. And so I'm standing in the way, the path, the lifestyle of sinners. And sinners is much more specific speaking of those who are actively breaking the law of God. We're all sinful individuals, we know that, but we also sin actively. We are passively sinful by nature just because of the fall. We are sinful people. And then we also actively engage in sin. And that's what the word sinners is here pointing to. Now the company that you're around, you're choosing to be around those who are actively engaging in sin. Perhaps they're professing Christians, perhaps they're not. But now you're standing with them. Now you're beginning to become convinced, not become, you have become convinced that this is the right way. Y'all are too serious over here. You're, you have a religious spirit. It's one of my favorite ones. You have a religious spirit. You're a Pharisee. You ever heard things like that before? That's what happens is step three. You have you toyed with the ideas. You became convinced. You started living this life. And now step three is that you are seated in the seat of the scorners, the scoffers. So what has happened is that this person has become convinced. They toyed with the idea. They became convinced. And now they are so utterly changed and hardened in this new way that they have now turned. And now they are against what is good. And they scoff at it. You're just a Pharisee. You have a religious spirit. You are just a Bible thumper. You're a biblicist. You are a fundamentalist. You know what that is? That's the seed of the scoffer. That is hardened heart against what is good, right, and true. But it didn't begin there. It began with just hearing ungodly people out, listening to their stories, Hearing them, being convinced, maybe, just, just maybe, and you start to ask questions about what you know to be true. What does this look like? Because it doesn't always mean that now you fell into just rampant sin and you're a drug addict and your life is just in utter shambles. It's much more refined than that quite often. I'm going to give you an example. There is... A person who is wildly influential, especially throughout the 90s and early 2000s. She had a popular show. She gave cars away. She was incredibly philanthropic. She gives, to this day, gives away an incredible amount of money. She even has her own TV channel now. She is big rich. Her name is Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey, what are we doing? Yeah. I'm using this example to show you 
that often the scoffing is very refined. And it's the upstanding citizen and the widely accepted voice. I heard her tell a story once of her Christian upbringing, and she describes one day in her late 20s when she's in church, and the pastor is talking about the omniscience and omnipresence of God, interestingly enough for our Sunday school lessons. He's talking about the omniscience and omnipresence of God and how great God is, she says. And then he gets to a point where he, he says, and God is a jealous God. And She said, something about that just didn't feel right in my spirit. And that was the day that she turned from God, if she was ever truly his. And there's a clip online that you can find that's really worth the watch, where she's denying any possibility of there being only one way to God. She says that it shouldn't matter if one person gets to God their way and wants to call God the light. What does it matter? Is God ultimately going to really care what you called him? Or does he just care about you embodying his ideals? She says, at one point, does God really care that you called his son Jesus? He cares a lot. But could there be a more refined, put-together-looking example of a person who sits in the seat of the scoffer than Oprah Winfrey? You, you probably chuckled that I would even bring her up she's so nice. She gives away so much money. She gave cars away, you remember. You get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. How can someone like that be in the seat of the scoffer? She is. She is fixed in this new way of life, just as anybody who does this is. And that person has changed so much that they have now turned against that which is good and right and true, and they scoff at it. It's, it's a ridiculous joke to them. What we learn about the degrees referred to here in verse 1 is that sin is a progressive disease. There is no such thing as maintaining a particular level of sinfulness. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. You're either hardening your heart in sin or you are killing it and putting it to death. That's what this shows us. You are either growing hard in sin or you're growing away from it. There are no middle options. Eventually, your heart can, be, heart can become so hardened that you now scoff at the truth. So it's not merely having sin or having committed even a gross sin but it's far more about adopting the way of the world, their thinking practices, and eventually having your heart so changed that it is now hard. This is what the blessed man does not do. But lest we think that Christianity is nothing more than a bunch of don'ts, verse 2 helps us. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So many times... We make the Christian life simply about what we do not do. We measure our godliness by what we don't do. Well, I don't drink anymore. I don't smoke anymore. I don't cuss anymore. Therefore, I'm godly. That's not a measure of godliness. There are many people who will be in hell who don't smoke, drink, or cuss. And guess what? They also don't ever vote Democrat. 
that's not what makes a person a Christian. This is nothing, that's nothing more than the level of morality that is attainable by non-believers, by people who are not indwelt with the Spirit, who don't care about God at all. But as we watch the psalmist continue to paint this portrait of the blessed life, we find that godliness is far more about the do than the don't. The blessed man, verse 2 tells us, delights in the law of the Lord so much that he meditates upon that law day and night. Is that you? Do you find joy and pleasure and delight in God's word? Or is it a chore for you? This is the complete opposite of verse 1, where we looked at listening to the counsel of the ungodly. He's not listening to the counsel of the ungodly. Why? Because his delight is in God's law. He doesn't, and it's very interesting too that he doesn't say, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but he uh, walks in the counsel of the godly. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't rephrase it. Instead, he turns to say, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Why would he do that? It's because Christianity, our faith, it's about new affections. It's about new desires. It's not just, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do that. It is having new desires. How do you keep from not being this man in verse 1? It's that you've been given a new heart that has a new affection. It is the word of God. Listen to Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. What does that mean? Work backwards. Because I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts, I delight in your word. That means you cannot be a child of God truly and not have a love for the word of God. Those two things are antithetical. They do not mix. They are oil and water. God gives his children the blessing of a love for his word. This delight. The Christian life is a change of the affections such that the heart is bursting forth with new desires. The sinner cannot delight in the law of the Lord. For all of their desires are contrary to the law of the Lord. So the walking, the standing, and the sitting from verse 1 are truly just revealing what the delight of the heart is. Self, pride, lust, jealousy, greed. Those are the things that are the delight of the heart in verse 1. And that's why they do that. So to see a person who we thought was a verse 2 person turns into a verse 1 person. It reveals what was truly the delight of their heart all along. If you do not delight in the law of the Lord, in his word, and in the scriptures, you're going to hear out any kind of counsel, any kind of wisdom that tickles your fancy. That sounds good. And you will inevitably adopt the way that the world thinks and acts, and eventually you'll become so hardened in your sin that you're just going to scoff at what is good. 
But for the blessed man, he is not swept away with the wisdom of the world, for his heart is too full of joy in God's wisdom. He pursues the wisdom of God more than anything else. He comes to his Bible with eager expectancy, eager to hear the word of the Lord. Now, does this mean that the blessed man never has a day when he just isn't in a very spiritual mood? The blessed man doesn't have a bad side of the bed. Where do you find one of those? course not. I love this quote from a poem by John Piper called The Calvinist. If it, it describes it so well. He says, see him in the word, helpless, cool, unstirred, heaping on the pyre, heed until the fire. That, I believe, is such a beautiful portrait of what a Christian is like. Is that sometimes you come to the word and I don't feel it. I'm not very spiritual today. I'm not in a great mood. I kicked the cat and spilled my coffee. And I come to the word and it's nothing more than words on the page. I got to do it or else God's not going to be happy with me. But you see him in the word and he's helpless and he's cool and he's unstirred. But he knows that the power is in the word. So he drinks deeply, knowing that even if he doesn't feel it now, that the Lord will bring the fire in his heart and renew to him the joy of his salvation once again. We return to the word again and again. Why? Because it's the delight of our heart, even when our physical body and our physical senses are telling us no and not right now. And we might not obey perfectly. We might find many failings in our life. We often walk with uneven steps on level ground. But by the grace of God, we return to the word for it is the delight of our new heart. Thus, says the psalmist, is the blessed man. That man is blessed. The one who loves and joys in the word of God. The one who comes to the text and is amazed by the supernatural nature of black letters on a white piece of paper. How can it be that these words so stir the soul when they appear to be nothing more than text and font on a page? They stir the soul for the blessed man knows there is life in these pages. There is joy inexpressible and delight inexhaustible in these pages. The Bible to the blessed man is not just a book full of rules to be followed for the religious and the Pharisee. The blessed man knows that this is the unfolding revelation of the one true and living God. And that by knowing these words, he comes to know that God. He knows that God. So, no world at odds with my God. I will not have any of your wisdom. I will not hear your counsel. I will not accept your advice. For everything you have to say will take me away from what I love most, delighting in my God. It is easy to see then why the blessed man, as the next line says, meditates upon the law of Yahweh. He meditates on God's law because he loves it. He delights in it. It makes him happy. This man is happy. It's not a mere glance at the scriptures in the morning before you rush off to your busy day. 
It is drinking deeply from this well and swishing around the water in your mouth as you enjoy how crisp and clean and refreshing it is. It's not just dipping your toes into the water. It's diving in head first and staying in the pool until your fingers start to get wrinkled. It's not a quick read of the verse of the day before going to work where you never think about it again. It's reading thoughtfully, prayerfully, and then pondering these things all the day long. That is what is meant by he meditates day and night. But why does this matter? You know, I, I love coffee, and for you serious coffee drinkers, I don't love coffee as much as you. I love to drink a cup of coffee in the morning. My wife, not so much. She likes hot tea, and so I've tried it, and it's, I don't have the patience for it. Just to confess it to you, she does because she is better than me. But you have to pour the water into the thing and make the thing hot until it's boiling and then wait for it to cool down just a little bit, but not too much because then it won't work. And then you have to put your tea bag into the mug and then pour the hot water into that. And then it's still not ready to drink. You have to let it steep for a little while. And then it's still not ready to drink. I don't have the patience. But you know what? I do know is that if you dipped that tea bag into the water and then took it right out and then tried to drink it, you would have nothing more than discolored water. And that's often how we read the word. We dip it into our brain and expect it to change us. But it is as the tea bag sits in the water and steeps and it begins to change the color and the flavor of that water, that's what the word of God does in our mind. As we let it steep in our brains and in our hearts, we become changed by it. And then before you know it, now, whenever a situation arises in the day that otherwise you would be unprepared for, I have my mind filled with the word of God, and so I can meet this situation with the sword of truth. But whenever I just dip the toe in the water and say, I read the Bible today, I read my devotional, I did it, I'm not changed, and there's no progress in godliness, and there's no progress in holiness, but more importantly, there's no progress in delighting in the word. So you know what? I'm not living the blessed life. Even though I might have a wonderful life, I might have great things and great friends and getting promotions at works at work, I'm not living the blessed life because I'm not delighting in the Lord. Thomas Brooks the old Puritan said it this way, it is not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. That's verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. Because the blessed man loves and delights in God's word, he meditates upon it all day, allowing it to shape his mind and his affections, thus receiving maximum benefit from the word read. He is like a tree that is planted by streams of water that never fails to produce fruit and isn't affected by the drought and doesn't die in the winter. That is to say that this blessed man produces God-glorifying fruit in every one of life's seasons. You all know quite well that in this life we experience great highs and great lows. 
the blessed man is not spared of the great lows. His life does not consist of only great highs. That is not why he is blessed. He is blessed because even in the great lows, they serve to his benefit. You see, many times the blessed life does not outwardly appear to be very blessed at all. And many times the life that appears to be very blessed is the one that will end in eternal curse. The blessed man instead prospers in all that he does. Now that statement can easily be misunderstood. I'm going to get Charles Spurgeon's help, if you don't mind, to explain this. Christians endure many pangs and difficulties, but even those great difficulties, they serve to their good. So Spurgeon spoke of how even what would appear to the eyes as, as being the opposite of prospering works to the benefit of the blessed man. He said, the trials of the saint are a divine husbandry by which he grows and brings forth abundant fruit. That means that even our trials and our difficulties and our afflictions and sufferings, they're all used as a tool by the master gardener to prune us so that we might bear more bountiful fruit. I mean, how more blessed can you be that even bad things serve to your good? Only a Christian can say that. That is the blessed life. The wicked are not so. Trials produce no fruit in them, but instead they prove them to be illegitimate children. Though they profess faith, though they are often to be found in the church, the trials they endure reveal that their faith is a false faith. That brings us finally to the portrait of the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As we have seen, this psalm teaches us that there are only two kinds of people, two ways of living, and two destinations. We've had glimpses of what the the wicked life entails as we've worked through the first half of the psalm, and now we focus largely on the two destinations. Now, I have intentionally spent a very long time on the first half because I have the assumption that I'm talking to Christians. And this last half is very self-explanatory. It does not need my exposition. You understand exactly what he means. But let's see just briefly. The psalmist wants us to remember that the cursed, the cursed end of the life that appears outwardly blessed, but is actually lived in a life of wickedness. It's not lived in, the subject, in subjection to the word of God. That life ends with eternal judgment. The blessed life, the one who is blessed, he lives a life that is profoundly significant. All that he does carries significance. Even just playing with your kids on the floor, even resting, even going out to eat with friends. Everything that the blessed man does carries profound significance, but the wicked are not so. Their lives are blown away like chaff in the wind, lightless, fruitless, meaningless, nothingless. It's nothing. It blows away with no impact of any sort that matters on anybody. That means even the most giving person 
who has not submitted themselves to the Lord, they're like chaff in the wind. They've had no real impact on anybody. They might have improved somebody's financial situation. They might have given a single mom in need a vehicle. But they've had no real impact. Their end is eternal destruction. The wicked will have lived to please their self. Even in their so-called good deeds, they did them from selfish motivation. Thus, when they encounter the one whom they spent their life in rebellion against, they will not stand in judgment. They will be blown away as quickly and as easily as chaff in the wind. The life lived in accord with the law of the Lord is a life lived under the watchful, caring eye of the Lord, while the life lived contrary to the law of the Lord is a life lived under the angry eye of the Lord. Now I ask you, which kind of life are you living this morning? Is your life being patterned after the blessed man or the wicked? Do you walk in the counsel of the ungodly? Or do you delight in the law of the Lord? In reality, you don't. You and I cannot completely fulfill this chapter. In reality, what we have done is look at a portrait of Christ. He is the truly blessed man. He is the one who, as he walked this earth, truly delighted in the law of the Lord. As we read in the call to worship, there is a psalm that is later cited in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews tells us that it's about Christ. And it's what we read in our call to worship. He says, Behold, I have come, that's Jesus. In the scroll of the book is written of me, that's Jesus. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart, that's Christ. But because this is true of Christ... Because he fulfilled this passage to a T, because he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he was the only worthy sacrifice to atone for all of our walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers. You and I, beloved, were like the chaff blown in the wind, who were headed to not being able to stand in the judgment. But because Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, because he died as the sinless sacrifice for sinful men, when we place our faith in him and his work, all of our law-breaking will have been transferred to him, and all of his delighting in the law of God is transferred to us such that we can now live the blessed life. That is why the psalmist proclaimed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Brothers and sisters, if your sins have been forgiven, this is becoming more and more true of you, and you are living the blessed life. Let's pray. Now, Father, I feel like we just we spent so much time here and just barely scratched the surface. But Lord, I pray that you would use my meager efforts to help your people. That we would be zealous to be the blessed man. That we would see this portrait truly fulfilled in Christ and adore him. And be so thankful that he did it so that we can at least grow in this kind of life. It might not be perfectly true of us, this side of glory. Lord, we have hearts that are 
drawn away by the cares of this world. I most especially, as I stand here before your people. But Lord, we know that because of your work in us, that we can grow in our delight for your word. That we can grow for delighting in obedience. That can only be said because of your great work in our hearts. So Father, would you please continue this good work? Would you please cause it to bear good fruit for you? May Christ receive the reward that he is worthy of from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.